Rochelle Young. And I'm Sarah American. And I'm Sam Tracy. And thanks for tuning in to season four of This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all-volunteer project produced by alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an international student-led organization working to end the war on drugs. Every week on This Week in Drugs, we hope to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully have some fun while we're at it. We envision a world in which our laws and attitudes surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy this week's show. Thanks for tuning in to episode 85 of This Week in Drugs. This is our season four premiere, and we'll have a little bit of a change in format uh, for this episode. So for season four, we'll be doing away with our drug of the month and replacing it with biweekly segments that feature the SSDP peer education materials about specific substances. And then you'll be hearing from me, uh, the resident This Week in Drugs producer and historian about drug history every other week. Additionally, we'll be changing our roundtable format while Rochelle and Sam pick up busy legislative schedules and featuring new uh, hosts, including Sarah Merrigan, our former engagement director, and a variety of rotating hosts uh, that come on as regulars, along with our featured guests. So this episode, we have our weekly news with Sam and Rochelle as normal, a drug history segment with me. And a roundtable discussion with Sarah Merrigan, Sam Tracy, Vilmarie Narlock, Diane Goldstein, and Henry Fisher of Voltface. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. And now it's time for the weekly news and forecast, where Sam and I bring you some of the biggest headlines in drugs and drug policy and then give you some special events and dates to look forward to ahead. Sam, do you want to give us our first news story this week? I would, but I would also like to take a quick second to announce, because this is the beginning of our fourth season and every other segment is changing, that this is the one segment that will not be changing one bit. And so Rochelle and I will still be doing the news. So for people who don't like too much change, this is staying the exact same. Mm-hmm. Same okay, quality, yeah, not improving at all. At least a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Constantly improving, but just the same format, which is a wonderful one. <laughs> okay. So to start things off with uh, our external news is that at an event on Thursday, the Harm Reduction Action Center, which is abbreviated HRAC, or at least I say it that way. I assume so that's how it's So do the cool kids in Denver. Awesome. <laughs> and so uh, they announced that this year their number one priority is to open a safe injection facility in Denver. So longtime listeners may remember HRAC from actually episode five, so going really far back, where their executive director, Lisa Reville, came on to talk about the opiate overdose crisis. And since that episode, which was way back in 2015, the crisis has only worsened. We are. I can't believe we've been doing this that long. But Um, since 2015, the, the crisis has only worsened and more people die of overdose every year in Denver and across the country. So after seeing so many people fall victim to overdose... Despite the widespread availability of naloxone and other harm reduction measures they're taking in Denver, ATRAC decided that the only way to really combat the problem would be to open a safe injection facility, uh, which has been really successful in Canada, but 
has still never been done before in the US. So they had an event on Thursday to launch this new effort. And I also want to give a quick shout out to Kat Humphreys, who works at HRAC for filling me in on some of the details uh, so that I was able to talk about it on the show today. Yeah, this is really exciting news. And I'm like proud on so many different levels that the cities uh, that I have some connection to the cities who are who are taking the Mm -hmm. first steps towards this. So um, Lisa Ravel was one of my first uh, guests when I started my SSDP chapter back in Boulder um, Mm. to come Mm -hmm. to speak to our chapter. So I've I've admired her work for a very long time Um, and on like a different note or a similar note. the Maryland General Assembly just this week heard um, of a bill that was coming up uh, to create safe injection facilities also. Um, mm. There was an, over an hour of testimony and support and almost no opposition. Um, the law, law enforcement awesome. lobbyists didn't even come out, which they normally do to oppose drug policy reform. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Montreal, which is my hometown, is about to open three of their own facilities up in Canada. So I'm really glad yeah. that this... Um, policy is gaining more traction in the in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is really exciting. And, and the one other one that's like the other U.S. city to watch is Seattle, where um, I think as their city council and also their board of health have all voted in favor of allowing safe injection facilities to open. Um, and, and one interesting thing, too, I'm not sure how they're doing it in Seattle or Baltimore, but with uh, in Denver, uh, HRAC is actually just pushing basically to have the city allow them to just open it. Um, mm-hmm. And they want to do it without any public money, without um, really any government support, only an allowance. At, at first, when I heard this news, for a second, I thought that they were going to take the insight route and just open it and see and, and kind yeah. of try to legally defend it <laughs> that way. It but they're doing it. Uh, yeah, they're, I guess they are already very well established. Uh, so they probably don't want to take that risky of a route, especially since uh, there's a serious prospect of getting Denver to actually explicitly allow it. So um, I think that they've got a really good shot at doing that. And of course, ATRAC has already done amazing work with um, increasing Mm -hmm. the uh, access to naloxone throughout Denver, uh, syringe exchanges to ensure that uh, to, you know, reduce the amount of HIV and hepatitis C that's um, passed on between intravenous drug users. Um, and th- this is really the obvious next step um, in har- in harm reduction um, in the same direction as mm-hmm. uh, syringe exchanges. Um, of course, there's o- almost 100 uh, SIFs worldwide at this point, and there have been zero overdose deaths in any of them. Um, mm-hmm. So these are facilities that have really been shown to reduce the public health issues related uh, with injection drug use without any significant increase um, in in intravenous drug users. And they also, um, you know, ensure um, that these people have access mm-hmm. to treatment nearby yeah. if that's yeah, something they're Yeah, there are just so many positive benefits. And one thing that also got mentioned in an article where, where Lisa was speaking was um, the amount of syringe litter that is all over the city and how that's definitely a public health hazard for, for having sharps just kind of laying about, which I've seen in a lot of areas. And so it was one thing that I just never really thought about with, with safe injection facilities, but that is yet another benefit. So... I'm really hoping that one of these cities makes it over the the finish line pretty soon and that this starts spreading across America as much as it has across Canada and uh, that more cities do this. 
Um, awesome. So moving on to our next story now at the federal level, um, many people in the cannabis industry and in the marijuana movement have been in a kerfuffle since Thursday when White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer responded to a question during his daily briefings about federal marijuana policy. And he did mention that we might see a greater enforcement of federal marijuana laws, which some people interpreted as you know, this really bad move um, Mm -hmm. on behalf of the White House. But I kind of want to push back on that idea that a federal crackdown is coming because it's been clear to me that in the past month, and Mm -hmm. I can't believe it's only been one month under the Trump administration, um, but that what is said during those press briefings often have very little connection to upcoming Mm -hmm. policy proposals. Um, So as a movement and for those within the industry, I do think we should be responding swiftly Mm -hmm. and decisively um, against any suggestions of a federal crackdown. But I really don't think that the federal government has the capacity to do anything like shut Mm -hmm. down this entire industry. Yeah, I guess I fall a little bit on the other side, but not as far on the other side as I've seen Mm -hmm. some others go. But And it probably just does come from my frustration of seeing a lot of marijuana legalization people, not too many that I know personally, but a lot online and stuff, defending Trump during the the campaign and saying that, uh, you know, he's actually going to be better on marijuana policy than Clinton and that sort of thing. And then now this just kind of confirming my like, of course, he's not going to be like, here's the first example. But I do agree that, you know, these press conferences are a bit more off the cuff. And I mean, it's not an executive order or anything that he's putting together. But I do really think that there, there's it's almost inevitable that there's going to be a lot of uh, attacks on the marijuana industry in the coming years just because, I mean, Jeff Sessions, uh, if any of these rumors about Chris Christie being involved uh, end up coming true, uh, but just the the people that Trump is surrounding himself with and buddying up to law enforcement and stuff on civil asset forfeiture, I mean, if he's bad on that, I feel like he's got to be bad on uh, adult use marijuana. But I hope I'm wrong. I hope that we're able to scare him off with... uh, warnings about how marijuana is like twice as popular as he is but uh who knows polls aren't real so i have so i have two um points that i definitely want to make about um Mm -hmm. you know what might be coming up and the first is that we should definitely make a distinction between the criminalization of personal use Mm -hmm. and uh possession and personal um Mm non-commercial growth of marijuana, um, which, of course, states have complete reign mm-hmm. over their own criminal laws. So if a state's voters decide that they do not want law enforcement resources going towards criminalizing the personal use and possession of marijuana, there's nothing the federal government can mm-hmm. do to force them to change those laws. But the other piece is the regulated industry aspect, which I think more people have been upset and worried about because of the millions of dollars that have been poured into the investment Mm -hmm. in establishing those industries, both by private investors and in governments in developing regulations around them. Um, And also because it would be a huge waste of federal law enforcement resources to try and go after individual users, Mm -hmm. right? That's like one of the big reasons they've always depended on the states to uh, be doing marijuana enforcement for them. By state police or something like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, on the industry side, I really do hope that, you know, 
uh, amongst other reasons that we've wanted such a tightly mm-hmm. regulated industry uh, that has these huge hurdles to overcome, that you have to show an incredible track re- record of, um, mm-hmm. you know, business experience and success. And in a lot of these cases, people who are licensed in super competitive competitive states have very tight mm-hmm. political connections as well. <laughs> One of the upsides to having yeah. such a an industry Mm -hmm. that's so difficult to enter is that hopefully these people will be able to defend their industry and stand up not only for their personal investments, but for the industry that Mm -hmm. has allowed them to profit That's a good point. I never thought about that angle, but I I, I do really hope that all of these, uh, you know, millionaires who have been getting involved with the legal industry now spend some money defending themselves. So (laughs) I think that is good. And as you said, basically worst case scenario, uh, Massachusetts and all of these other states end up basically where DC is now, which, um, I mean, it would be great to, to have retail stores, but home grow and, and legal possession is not so bad. <laughs> um, definitely. I mean, and on uh, another point towards the industry side, it's I know, right. I know I'm over time <laughs> this time. I like forgot to turn on my timer again, but, um, um, I hope the states that have invested mm-hmm. in the regulation of these markets already step up to defend their own laws. Um, Washington state, the governor and attorney general mm-hmm. have already responded um, by saying that they will be protecting Washington's legalization. Um, and of course, there's a cannabis caucus in Congress now um, that has said they will stand up for the 28 mm-hmm. medical marijuana states um, and the eight yeah, that have full adult use legalization. True. We got good defense this time. <laughs> And so for our <laughs> next story, unfortunately, is a, is a, another negative one. Um, and this is that on Friday, uh, there was yet another terrible development in President Rodrigo Duterte's violent crackdown under the guise of a drug war, as the state has now arrested one of his most vocal critics, uh, Senator Leila de Lima. So she's in the National Senate and has been speaking out against Duterte's extrajudicial killings ever since the beginning, uh, back when they were only, you know, in the dozens or hundreds instead of thousands. And prosecutors claim that she accepted bribes from drug lords, which is where this arrest warrant comes in. Uh, But her allies, including the vice president, who, as we've talked about before, is elected separately and actually is against uh, the president here, uh, says that it's clearly politically motivated and that there's no real evidence against her. Um, so I want to give a quick shout out to uh, Tom Angel's newsletter, where I actually heard about this story for the first time. And I also just think it's great that it's a marijuana newsletter, but that he's covering some larger drug war stuff on there, too. Um, but yeah. What's that newsletter called? Marijuana give moment. it a shout out. I think. Yes. <laughs> it's not marijuana. Yes. AF, um, as John Decker was originally pushing for. <laughs> 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 That's hilarious. We literally mm-hmm. talked about this in my house today. Mm-hmm. Tom Angel, big it's mistake, but we appreciate your newsletter anyway. <laughs> and so, yeah, the only evidence that the state has in this case, which makes it seem, you know, even more sketchy, is testimony from some drug lords who were already in prison and are getting reductions in their sentences in exchange for being state witnesses. Uh, so, I mean... I guess theoretically there's the potential that it's true, but there's also kind of a lot of obvious room for corruption here. So this is really scary because um, in a country where we've seen literally thousands of extrajudicial killings already to be um, an opponent Mm -hmm. of the government like that uh, sounds like it can be really risky. And actually, apparently, uh, Senator DeLeon, Salima wouldn't be the first political opponent um, of Duterte's uh, to be targeted. Mm -hmm. 
with an uh, with a with a prosecution or uh, an alleged drug uh, connection. It sounds like in November, a mayor was literally shot dead in a jail cell after he was arrested for mm-hmm. uh, drug drug crimes. So do do we know anything else about that or the the odds of uh, the senator yeah, being a I target? Yeah, I mean that one was incredibly suspicious too because he was already in a jail cell and they claimed that he secretly had a gun on him and, and pulled it out and shot them. I mean, it reminded me of that story. I mean, this happens. It's kind of similar thing in the U.S. where there was that guy who was who they claimed he was like handcuffed in the back of the police car and that they claimed he had a gun and shot himself. Um, I forget the the name of that case, but uh, that was a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and so, so I mean, it's incredibly suspicious. Obviously, a lot of potential for abuse there. I I do hope that her being higher profile um, will help protect her from from being killed just because it would hopefully spark off a, a, a lot more unrest than someone who was lower profile in those cases. But you never know. Um, and, and unfortunately, I mean, he's actually pretty um, uh, popular in his country. And so who knows how much leeway he thinks he has with the law and in uh, killing high profile opponents. So we're, we're definitely going to be keeping an eye on this. Hopefully, Senator DeLima will be able to. Uh, fight against these charges somehow, uh, but we'll be keeping that updated. All right, and moving on to our next story, which was actually uh, flagged for us by our new roundtable host, Sarah Merrigan. Um, This story is about the increasingly common practice of pharmaceutical companies to pay academics and uh, researchers consulting fees in order to defend their skyrocketing price hikes, uh, particularly on life-saving medicine. So the I- article I read was an expose uh, on one particular firm called Precision Health Economics that has been retained by the three leading makers of hepatitis C treatment in the market. Um, so at a congressional briefing last May on Hep C, three of the four panelists um, who were experts testifying in support of th- these medicines were current or former Precision Health Economics consultants. Um, So there's Mm -hmm. always, of course, been a connection between lobbying firms and um, whether it's economists or medical experts. We rely on um, researchers and people who have done a lot of Mm -hmm. uh, studying in certain fields to come justify certain policies one way or another. But... Um, this does raise questions about the importance right. of academic independence, like whether your opinion is going to be influenced one way or the other based on who's paying you mm-hmm. to do certain types of research. Yeah, um, do you have any I, thoughts I mean, on this, Sam? To me, there is a lot of gray area with these kind of things. Um, I mean, in kind of the same way with like policy think tanks separate from uh, um, like any issue that like if you have a certain political stance um, in favor, say, of uh, oil or like against or in favor of nuclear energy. And you honestly believe those. And mm-hmm. then the nuclear energy industry or, or lobbying group gives you money or something. I feel like, OK, I, I, I can see that being acceptable. And but then the real problem comes along when essentially it just turns into bribes for people to be like, I'll say anything you want if you give me a bunch of money, which can certainly happen in a lot of cases. But I mean, to me. I, mm-hmm. Right. There is a definite 
I mean, there there's definitely a difference between mm-hmm. the appearance of bias and actual bias, which is actually an issue that came up a lot during mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton's presidential cl- campaign, which was like whether she could really uh, hold Wall Street accountable when right. so much of her campaign donations were coming directly from mm-hmm. Wall Street and the big banks. Um, so I think this definitely raises questions of whether we need to have something like campaign finance laws for scientists, too, and mm-hmm. where they get their research funding. Um, obviously, my support would go towards more government funding, which is... You know, science is a common good that everyone mm-hmm. benefits from, in my opinion. Yeah, um, and it does also seem like the government should just also look for better quality or, or diversity of viewpoints for things like congressional hearings, because that does seem crazy if it's like, okay, you can mm-hmm. have one person affiliated with the industry and then like a few other independent ones talking about this rather than three out of four just seems overboard. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, what if, mm-hmm. what if the same people are paying both sides? Then how then how then who lobbies for that diversity of opinion if the if the politicians are being uh, and they're choosing the maybe by the same companies that are funding <laughs> something like that. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so um yeah, so I definitely hope um, you know, that there's at least some some stricter conflicts of interest or disclosure type laws regulating Uh, panels like this in the future if we can't get money out of politics. So then moving on down to our quick hit headlines. The first is that Colorado State University is hiring a director for their new Institute of Cannabis Research, which is located at their campus in Pueblo. Uh, You need a master's degree and applications are due March 15th, but they said they'd like them as soon as possible. And we have the link on our website. On Monday, the government of South Africa voted to approve the production of medical marijuana. It had already been legal for individual patients to use cannabis under medical exceptions in the country, but I believe that this makes South Africa the first African nation to approve medical cannabis nationwide. And Tilray, a medical cannabis company in Canada, has received the necessary government approvals on both sides to export products to New Zealand. They'll be sending shipments of THC and CBD oils to Middlemore Hospital in Auckland. And finally, Bolivia's government has agreed to raise production limits on legal coca farming. Coca is a traditional agricultural crop in Bolivia and a traditional remedy for altitude sickness, along with Bolivia's president, Evo Morales, being a former coca farmer. Their policy of distinguishing between coca, which is legal, and cocaine, which is not, has been widely successful. And then moving on down to our weekly forecast, uh, mine is a a kind of personal and work announcement. So it's that on this Wednesday, uh, we're going to be having a press conference to kick off the Connecticut Coalition to Regulate Marijuana, uh, which I'm now directing. So it'll be at 11 a.m. at the Legislative Office Building in Hartford, uh, which has a great free parking garage right next to it. So if any Connecticut listeners do want to attend, uh, please come on by. We're going to have a bunch of elected officials and leaders from the community who will be speaking about the importance of marijuana regulation and why Connecticut should pass a bill to do so this year. Um, and I actually have two forecasts this week, and they're they're also <laughs> personal slash work related. So if you want Sam and I to forecast things that are not about our jobs, you should send us mm-hmm. more events. <laughs> but um, coming up this Thursday, March 2nd in Annapolis is our big marijuana day. 
Uh, starting at 1 p.m. in the Senate Judicial Proceedings Committee, we'll be hearing bills for adult use legalization, marijuana expungement, and fixes to the medical marijuana program, including at least two proposals that directly address uh, racial disparities in the enforcement of marijuana laws. Um, plus, we'll also be fighting back against efforts to criminalize public use. So if you're in Maryland and you want to testify or support us um, on any of all of these or all of these marijuana bills, um, it's 1 p.m. in the Senate Judicial Proceedings Committee on Thursday, March 2nd. And then my second announcement is that the National Cannabis Festival is holding an AMA, which stands for Ask Me Anything, on Reddit this Sunday, February 26th at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, so that's today, if you're listening to this episode, the day it airs. Um, and I will be participating in this AMA along with uh, representatives from MPP, NCIA, uh, and the Baltimore Harm Reduction Coalition. So we'll put a link to that on our website, too. Awesome. So that is everything for our weekly news and forecast for the kickoff of our fourth season. Um, and as Rochelle already said, if you want us to uh, talk about any forecasts about events that, that you're doing rather than ones that we're doing, uh, <laughs> then feel free to send us an email uh, or you can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. Our email address is thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. And you could just find us uh, on Facebook or Twitter by just searching This Week in Drugs. Um, and same goes for uh, any news and any news that you uh think is really interesting and want to talk about or any responses to uh stories that we talked about this week Before our advertisement, just a quick reminder that cannabis laws are different in every country and sometimes within countries, so be sure to be familiar with your own before engaging in any cannabis commerce. Whatever you prefer to call it, marijuana, cannabis, ganja, weed, pot, herb, bud, we certainly have something for you to choose from. Zambiza Seeds is currently one of the fastest growing companies in the world among the cannabis seed suppliers. Every single cannabis seed that we sell is grown organically, handpicked and tested for the quality to ensure the highest germination rate. The Zambiza Seeds team is here to help you enjoy the best harvest. Thanks to Zambiza Seeds for sponsoring this episode, and we'll have a link to their website in the show notes. And now we'll be moving into a new segment premiere, This Week in Drugs History, with me, your friendly podcast producer, Tyler Williams. This new segment was developed in response to listener feedback about the types of new content that you all wanted to see in Season 4. Every other week, I'll bring you relatively rigorously researched history of drugs, drug policy, and other topics of tangential interest. Fortunately, I'm somehow uniquely positioned to provide this information because I have a formal degree in the field of history. So, to the best of my ability, I'll be upholding the ethics and practices of my training in all of this research that I'm doing. Before I jump into the meat of this inaugural segment, I want to talk a little bit about how I do history and sort of what the historian's craft is. History is more of an art than a science, um, and there are a variety of ways in which historians do their work. For this segment, I'll be working to take listener-submitted questions and historicize them as specifically and uniquely as possible. I'll do this by distilling the essence of the topic into one discrete question, which I will then contextualize by explaining the broad historical period in which it takes place, 
uh, define the historical time frame that I'll be working out of and, and why I chose that time frame, and then using primary and secondary sources to answer the question to the best of my ability uh, and succinctly as well. These segments will be relatively short. There are a few things that I will not be able to provide in this segment, and I'd really like to clear the air pretty immediately of these. I will not be able to provide satisfactory answers to the questions of things like what was the specific cause of a major historic event or what would have happened if something else had taken place. These types of questions are certainly not without value, but in a lot of circles they're regarded to be sort of ahistorical. It's exceptionally difficult to look at history and say with any degree of certainty that because X happened, then Y. Or if Z had happened, maybe everything would be different. Um, and anyone who provides you with these sorts of answers with uh, with serious conviction and, and claims that they are truths, uh, that person is a hack. History is fluid. Historians are constrained by their own biases, uh, the information that's available to them, the context in which they're doing history, and also sort of this intangible nature of what the past is. I mean, mostly we're storytellers, and so we can do better work when we're asking specific questions that can be uh, sort of uh, teased out of like very real documents that we know to be true, uh, or even, you know, untrue documents and making inferences from uh, you know, the source material of the time. Right. Uh, but it's not a science where there's uh, an equation that we can say, like, this is true. That's false. Uh, if you add a little bit more uh, liberal democracy here, then you end up getting fewer revolutions there or whatever it is. Right. Like this is uh, much more of an art of telling the story based on the facts that we can know, because there are some knowable things. And that's really what I'm going to be trying to focus on is uh, answering these questions in terms of the knowable things that exist in the information that is out there. Right. With all of that out of the way, uh, and I'll probably be giving a small disclaimer about what history is on the beginning of each segment, uh, I'll keep it shorter next time, let's get right down to the first question, uh, which is submitted by listener Frank Giratana. Uh, and Frank asks, who supported and who opposed the Controlled Substances Act when it first came up before Congress? You know, I really loved this question because it's succinct and it's specific, and I think we can still learn a lot from the investigation of this very, uh, very small question. So let's uh, let's dig in. First, I want to talk about the Controlled Substances Act. Um, most of our listeners are likely familiar with it. Uh, it's a federal drug policy that regulates the manufacture and distribution of controlled substances, things like narcotics, depressants, stimulants, other drugs. The act categorizes drugs into five schedules or classifications based on uh, what the government believes to be their potential for abuse, in quotes, uh, because abuse, uh, drug abuse is actually not a uh, currently accepted term for uh, drug misuse or problematic relationships with drugs or just drug use in general. Uh, but that's how this is written. So um, it also uh, deals with the status in international treaties um, of these drugs and any medical benefits they may provide. So this act was passed by the 91st United States Congress as Title II of the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act of 1970 and signed into law by President Richard Nixon. The act also served as the national implementing legislation for the single convention on narcotic drugs, which we've talked about in the past in our episodes about the UN and international drug policy. Learning about the Controlled Substances Act is important to our work because when we refer to the war on drugs, we're largely talking about the consequences of this act and its enforcement uh, in the U.S. and abroad. 
So now that we know a bit more about our subject, the Controlled Substances Act, let's return to the specific question. Who supported and who opposed it when it first came before Congress? And so this is a really interesting part of how we do history, right? Because there's two parts to this question, the who and the when. As for the who, I could certainly go through the roll call of the vote, uh, but that would actually be kind of dull and meaningless. And, and although it would, it would technically be history, uh, it wouldn't be an interesting story. Instead of reading out who voted yay, nay or abstained, uh, what I'd like to focus on is sort of the you know political parties and factions and forces that shape the debate in Congress over this bill. And I'm limiting this to Congress uh, because understanding the history of political opinion is is really difficult. Um, and so, you know, because there's there's fewer primary sources, the legitimacy of those things are harder to verify. Uh, and it's just uh, I mean, those can be research projects in and of themselves that people write dissertations on. And this is a five to 10 minute segment. So we'll just talk about the uh, U.S. Congress, the 91st Congress and and what we've got available to us for that data. So the second part of that question is the when. And for the most part, I'll be talking about just the time period of 1969 to 1970. Uh, before that, the U.S. had a patchwork of consumer protection and drug manufacturer laws prior to this, uh, such as the Harrison Act and the Marijuana Tax Act. But it wasn't until 1969 that President Richard Nixon decided to add some oomph to these laws by putting federal power behind them and consolidating them. Uh, up until that point, most of those laws had been enforced at a local level with limited resources and, and, like I said, sort of like a patchwork of laws. But in 1969, Nixon and his attorney general began the task of addressing drugs at the federal level by combining all existing federal laws into a single new statute. And, uh, of course, 1970 is the end of our time period here because in October of 1970, that's when the act was officially passed by Congress. Now that we have an understanding of what the Controlled Substances Act is, why it's important to our work, and the specific two questions we'll be investigating, let's get to the real history part of this. So, who supported the Controlled Substances Act and opposed it in 1970 when it first came before Congress? When the bill first appeared before the Senate, it was actually much smaller and mostly a law enforcement bill uh, that unified a lot of federal policy on drugs and enforcement. But disputes about jurisdiction triggered a variety of committee hearings and debate in the House, which is actually where we find most of the opposition and nuanced testimony and amendments that were either uh, adopted or rejected. Um, so, you know, we'll talk a little bit about really who supported this. Uh, so certainly the president and his administration. Of course, John Mitchell, uh, the attorney general at the time, uh, who was kind of the architect and put this together, uh, provided testimony and support along with John Ingersoll, the director of the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, uh, also testified in favor. And there were a lot of... Um, law and order types and uh, on both Republican and Democrat sides who were uh, in favor of it. But most of their testimony is is largely not of much uh, impact here. Right. Like understanding the motivations of President Nixon wants to grant the federal government more authority to enforce drug laws is pretty much where they all fell in support of. Right. Uh, there's some interesting um, opposition testimony in the uh, in the information about this bill. So Representative Paul Rogers, a Democrat of Florida, opposed it um, because he was concerned. And, and, said, and he says, quote, some of us are concerned about the possibility of 
diverting responsibility from a scientific body, um, which is the, the health and education department, uh, over to an enforcement body. Uh, there were a variety of uh, doctors who were experts from the National Institute of Mental Health, the Food and Drug Administration, the American Public Health Association, the American Medical Association, and the American College of Neuropsychopharmacology, which all almost like word for word, uh, I think, you know, clearly we're working together in this opposition, said that the bill focused too heavily on law enforcement over science to tackle issues of drug use, uh, that the legislation wasn't comprehensive or logical in the way that it classified drugs or the way that it, it dealt with drug use and manufacture and distribution. Um, and many of them predicted, rightly so, that it would have a variety of unintended side effects uh, that would do nothing to actually, you know, effectively address this, you know, issue of how our country uses drugs and how that impacts public health and, and people's lives. The ACLU also was there as part of the opposition uh, and took specific issue against uh, the criminalization of marijuana use and possession, along with uh, these no-knock raids and inspections that really be became codified in this uh, in this legislation. Still, uh, like I said, these voices were the minority, which is why I pull them out, uh, because for the most part, there wasn't a heck of a lot of nuanced and, and fired up testimony against the bill. Uh, the Congress was really falling in line behind it. And like most of the fights were over jurisdiction, uh, who actually gets to enforce these things? Where is the money coming from? Uh, those sorts of questions that were not. Should we make all these drugs federally illegal and then, you know, uh, force that on the country, but rather, how are we going to do it? Uh, and that's that's really, I think, what happened in, in the, the support for this is that the support was really factioned just by people who were debating the, the, the devices by which they would prohibit drugs. Um, and then there were some folks, uh, including uh, Senator Dodd from Connecticut, Sam in my home state, uh, who asked to make sure that even more substances were included on this list of scheduled and scheduled more like more strictly. Uh, so, you know, that was <laughs> there. I suppose there was some opposition to the original bills because some folks felt that it did not go far enough and their amendments passed. And so the opposition to the bill in its in its original language uh, was mostly about the nuances of how it would work and asking for it to go further um, with a notable exception that they did make a distinction. There was an amendment passed to make a distinction between um, marijuana use and distribution as two separate crimes. Uh, th that was actually a very successful piece for drug policy uh, as sort of this like rational model of drug policy that works for public health. So other amendments that passed on this measure, right, uh, were things like um, allowing judges to impose even more severe sentences, limiting the appeals processes to a five-year statute of limitations for people convicted of, viol of violent crimes, tightening controls, like I said, over amphetamines and tranquilizers. These drugs weren't actually scheduled uh, as strict in the first iteration. Um, and then, of course, these amendments to remove the no-knock raids, um, you know, have a stricter definition of what criminal enterprise means. Uh, and then of ensuring the right that defendants were given uh, cross-examination and sentencing for dangerous offenders, those um, those amendments did not pass. But after all of this infighting in which the Congress pretty resoundingly said, we like it, but we wish it did more, uh, they uh, took a voice vote um, and the revised bills were approved uh, in the House and the Senate on October 14th and sent to the president. 
the Senate's vote was pretty unanimous and the House had some minor opposition, but it really didn't even come close to uh, to a fight. So for the most part, what we can say about this bill in terms of who opposed it and who supported it is that the mainstream Congress supported it. Many even wanted tougher laws and got what they asked for. There was a small faction in the House that called for less law enforcement, more research, and the protection of civil liberties, but they were largely steamrolled. And the conclusion that I want to come to in this segment is that when it comes to using law enforcement to address drug use in society, the same arguments on both sides have been being made since 1969 and earlier. We're just not looking at that historical time period. But through effective organizing, shifting public opinions, uh, building power in Congress, reform voices and the, sensi- and, and the voices of sensible drug policy have become stronger. And I think things like we saw this, uh, you know, just months ago about the public outrage over the DEA's attempts to schedule Kratom and the way that the public pushed back on it and made them go back on their decision. The Department of Justice uh, issuing memos to back off state legal marijuana programs, attempts to roll back mandatory minimums and decriminalize marijuana across the states really show that this work that we do to do drug policy reform um, is meaningful and has actually changed what is politically possible in the United States. And because of the United States unique position in the world, I think has also had some impact on what's possible globally. Um, And it really makes me understand in a concrete way how important it is to organize and educate and agitate build strategies, do activist work to implement those strategies and really, really build power in a meaningful way. Um, I think that's I think that's something that I really want folks to take from this segment. uh, And I hope that's an inspirational message uh, for this first drug history moment uh, that we will be doing on the show. Um, And with that, I'd like to leave the segment with a prescient piece of testimony uh, delivered by Representative John Jarman of Oklahoma. And in 1970, he said that this bill, quote, deals with one of the most important health problems existing in the United States today, the problem of drug abuse. Many persons consider that this problem is primarily one involving law enforcement. But in my opinion, it is a health problem a mental health problem. The abuse of drugs is a criminal offense, but is a criminal offense only because we have made it one. And uh, I think that his words are being heard by more and more people. Uh, I think that if he was living in uh, contemporary America right now and testifying, I would hope he would use words other than drug abuse. Uh, But nonetheless, um, I hope that we can make that vision of drug policy that Representative John Jarman in 1970 had uh, a reality in 2017 and, and the future for America. So thanks for listening and uh, enjoy the rest of the show.
All right, everyone. Now it is the beginning of our uh, roundtable discussion. And this is, of course, we mentioned it in the uh, transitions at the beginning of the uh, of the show. But this is our first episode of our new fourth season. Uh, and so things are a little bit different now. Um, as usual, we are going to be having a roundtable discussion with some of the uh, top experts in drug policy reform, uh, both in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, but uh, we've changed things up a little bit. Instead of uh, Rochelle and I being the co-hosts, uh, Sarah Merrigan, our former engagement director, uh, is now going to be leading the discussion. Uh, and we're joined by myself as one of the regulars, along with Diane Goldstein and Vilmarie Narlock, uh, also as some of our regular guests. And for our special guest this week, we have Henry Fisher of Voltface. Yay! Welcome, everyone. Um, I'm really excited about the new format of This Week in Drugs. I don't know if we want to start off really quickly, um, have Vilmarie and Diane maybe give us one, two sentences about your experience in drug policy, and then we can jump to Henry. Sure. Uh, um, I can go ahead and start. This is uh, Vilmarie Narlock, and I am the Drug Education Manager at Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Um, prior to that, I was on the Board of Directors of SSDP, and I also led the Roosevelt University chapter here in Chicago. Um, during that time, I was also a research assistant at the Illinois Consortium on Drug Policy. So I've been doing this kind of stuff for uh, quite a while now. Since 2009, I've been involved in drug policy work. Awesome. So this is Dan. Diane Goldstein, and I'm uh, an executive board member for the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, formerly known as Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. And coincidentally, it's nice being on with Henry because I'm also a board member for um, LEAP United Kingdom that was launched a year ago. Fantastic. Thank you. And then our special guest this week is Henry Fisher, if you want to tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Thanks, Sarah. Um, yeah, so I'm uh, the policy director at Voltface, which is a pretty new uh, UK-based organization that started about a year and a half ago. Um, before that, I uh, worked at the Beckley Foundation, uh, which is a, another drug policy organization that also does a lot of research into psychedelics. Uh, it's based out in Oxfordshire here. Um, and then alongside my work here, I also volunteer as part of the testing team for The Loop, which is a harm reduction organization that's been doing uh, drug testing at festivals this year in the UK for the first time. Well, that's fantastic. Um, I know you said Voltface is pretty new. Would you mind telling us and our listeners um, kind of how that got started and what your role as the policy director is? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we started off about, about a year and a half ago, primarily as a magazine, um, partly with the aim of really doing something new in terms of drug policy, because we've got some awesome organizations here in the UK that have been doing drug policy for years. Uh, but due to the kind of political climate here, um, which we, you know, uh, in 2015, we elected another uh, conservative government here. Um, there, there needed to be perhaps a, a different way of framing some of the drug policy debates, or at least that's what some people thought here. Um, and that's how Voltface got started, as kind of just widening the debate, essentially. And we started off as a magazine first, just to pull lots of voices in. Um, and then uh, in about May last year, we sort of 
made the transition from just a magazine into a think tank where we've been producing policy reports and we're just about to engage in a couple of big campaigns this year focusing mainly on cannabis but on on any kind of pragmatic changes that we can make to, to UK drug policy really. That's fantastic. So would you say that cannabis reform is sort of the the primary focus right now, or the uh, if not the primary focus, the one that seems um, perhaps the most realistic? It's, it certainly is for us. I think it's, it's the primary focus for us simply because compared to so many other places, both obviously on your side of the Atlantic and also elsewhere mm-hmm. in Europe, cannabis reform has been creeping ahead slowly. And yet in the UK, it's the one area of drug policy uh, which really has made absolutely no progress at all. Um, you know, we, did, we haven't even had any action on, um, on medical cannabis. Um, so 10 years ago, uh, cannabis was downgraded here from class B to class C, and then it was moved back up to class B again two years later. So there was an attempt at reform just to essentially to move towards decriminalization, and that was essentially foiled uh, for whatever reasons. Um, and, and since then, there's really been no movement forwards on cannabis. And I feel like that's why there's so much scope for actually making, making change here. There's so much mm-hmm. happening in the US and Canada and in Germany and in Italy. There's a lot of space for stuff to happen here, too. And yeah, that's really interesting with the, the, the lack of progress on reform there in the UK on cannabis, because I know that, um, or at least to, to me, I, I feel like Ireland has a reputation as being much more conservative or more religious. And with them just passing medical cannabis or in the final stages of passing it now, do you think that that's putting a lot of pressure on the UK in order to, to move the ball forward a little bit? I, I think so. Well, I, I hope so. That's what we're going <laughs> to kind of and try and press on the UK government. You know, if, if Ireland, which has a very similar uh, legal system to the UK, uh, can actually move on this thing, and they have a very similar system of uh, regulating medicines, then it provides a very strong blueprint uh, for us. I mean, it's it's the only country we have a land border with, uh, so there's there's a lot of reasons for us to actually be starting to move forwards on this. I mean, our first policy document that we released in Dece- uh, December, yeah, December, uh, the tide effect, or maybe it was November, anyway, last year, uh, focused on how things are changing in, in the US and in Canada and how that is inevitably going to have an impact here and how we need to be thinking about that already. And because if we don't, so many of uh, our politicians here haven't really been thinking at all about drug policy. It's just something they're happy to sweep under the carpet and, and ignore there'll be more voices for, for cannabis reform, especially. And if they're not paying attention, they won't really know what to do about it. So we're trying to try and prepare them and push them in the right direction. You know, Henry, um, it was, I loved your response to as what I kind of call Alice Thompson, which is the you know UK version of Kevin Sebat <laughs> in some aspects. Yeah. It is, um, you literally, which is something that I've been doing here, is in the pushback against the false narratives and the lies, the damn lies and the drug war lies that Kevin Sebet promotes, not just in the United States, but across the UK. Um, you know, your response uh, to her was absolutely brilliant with the Adam Smith Institute. And I have used that article and pushed it out to so many journalists 
in the United States, um, as well as to lawmakers. Um, and I used it during our Proposition 64 campaign this year in our endorsement board. And it, um, so we met with editorial boards up and down the state of California. And that was one of my policy pieces that I kept floating back to, which was brilliant. You know, it, it, it's, um, it, it was well worth, uh, you know, th I thank you for your effort. How's that? <laughs> It was it was a fun piece to do actually, and I feel a bit sorry for Alice Thompson because she's so, so she's a fairly well renowned columnist here, and you know it's not like she's she's anti drug reform. Two weeks before that, I think she wrote a really brilliant piece on the fact that we're getting we're hopefully getting our first ever supervised injection facility up in Glasgow, um, hopefully later this year or or maybe later, and she wrote a, a brilliant column in support of that. But then when our piece came out, I think she was essentially looking for a good line. She landed on the, what is it, Rocky Mountains High Intensity Drug Area report mm, on Colorado, mm -hmm. which is, is pretty damning um, and, and pretty fake, as it turns out. Um, it was pretty handy because it was just as the fake news thing was landing, <laughs> so we get, got to point her and say fake news. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's just amazing. You, you can look at their report, and it seems perfectly legitimate. It's a masterpiece in taking taking statistics and twisting them. And so we just had to untwist every single one because she didn't know. Um, and you know, when you actually look at the statistics from the, the Colorado, um, you know, from Colorado State, all, all those supposed statistics that they'd thrown up fall apart. They just hadn't put them in context. They, they hadn't, you know, they, they'd skewed every single one. So it was interesting to kind of go through uh, fact mm -hmm. by fact and, and debunk. For any of, well, and, and I think, Oh, I'm, so I'm just going to say ahead. for any of our uh, data nerds out there, we will make sure to post this piece uh, on the link with this episode on our website so that everybody can check out all these amazing statistics. And please go ahead, Diane. Yeah, it would be well, nice you if you use it as a resource. Yeah, and you know what's amazing is that, and, and I think that's the issue that we have in the United States relative to um, law enforcement is leading the rhetorical ward and what they do you know the cherry picking is outrageous so one of the things that that rocky mountain hide i did a an article that was posted in the influence that showed how much money is being spent by the federal government inappropriately except it's kind of not uh it's unethical um and they can do it but it's literally millions and millions of dollars that the hida is using to support prohibition, and they're flat out lying. It is uh, the same guy um, that helped perpetuate the Rocky Mountain Hida report also did a California Hida report. And I know for a fact that they um, have been using all the same figures and in the same way in order to continue to prop up drug prohibition. It's horrible. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because in the UK, when you look at the police here, they're not necessarily providing the, the, the kickback against it. In fact, a lot of police are kind of quietly moving towards our way of thinking. I mean, there's certain police forces, there's Durham and there's Somerset in particular, where they're actually leading on this and they're either moving towards decriminalization or they're moving towards diversion when it comes to other drugs, uh, so diversion instead of... Um, instead of giving people criminal records. So there, there are a lot of good things that the police here are doing. It's more just the fact that, that 
they actually the government themselves are, are being far more cautious because they don't they don't want to endorse anything um, that they perceive mm-hmm. as risky. You mentioned Durham, um, and this might be a good segue into some of the drug testing stuff because if I remember correctly, Durham is one of the places where you guys have been able to do some of the drug checking work. Um, the Loop specifically is who I mean by you guys. Um, so it wasn't in Durham oh. where we were testing, but that's Durham University is where Fiona Meacham is a, okay. is a professor. That's so it. That's, that's probably Durham. Lincoln. That's it. Um, but yeah. So yes, yeah, so I was Fiona's prof- a criminology professor in, in Durham. Uh, but no, we, we did testing at uh, Kendall Calling, which is somewhere up in the north. So I guess it's not a million miles from Durham. Well, it's, it's on the other side of the country. Um, and then the other place was Secret Garden Party, which was the very first festival that we did in the UK. And that was where I was there as part of the testing team. And what was that experience like um, to actually be part of the testing team? Um, I guess. I'm, for me, I absolutely loved it because, I mean, being a drug nerd anyway, and so my background before moving into policy, I was, is, I was a chemist, I was doing a PhD. Um, so it's uh, doing the testing is where I get my two worlds come together. I get to do drug policy and mm-hmm. I also get to do a lot of geeky chemistry. And it's, it's brilliant actually seeing the tent where we do the testing because there's the, the drug workers out the front that, that interact with the, with the festival goers. And then there's kind of the back room where there's me and a bunch of other chemists and we're just sitting there geeking out over kind of what, what's in this pill and what's in that pill and, and <laughs> whether we think it's 2CB or MA or whatever it happens to be, which is good fun, really. You sort of forget that you're at a festival except for the fact that everyone's covered in <laughs> glitter. Um, uh, um, I think we had so, yeah, Steve Rolls... Um, from Transform Drug Policy Foundation came on and I think he spoke to that a little bit, but can you talk a little bit more about what type of drug testing you guys used? Um, like, was it a reagent kit or was it something more? Yeah, yeah. So we have we have three methods uh, that we used to, to test, our, test, test the drugs to come through. And um, uh, the, the kind of primary one, the one that's been, I guess, I guess novel, uh, so police forces in some places use it, but they've never used it to actually in a in a front of house drug testing method where they then give results back to people, it's always been for police confiscation. So we use uh, FTIR, so that's um, infrared spectroscopy, um, as our primary method of of analysis. And the handy thing about that is it's the perfect mix of being accurate and very very quick. Really, we can if it's a powdered sample, we could basically have the results back to someone in thirty seconds if it's not too complicated. Um, there's, there's some there's some limitations to it. We don't hide that. The fact that if there's some something there in very low concentration, we might not pick it up. And that's in particular that's been a potential concern when you look at what's happening in Canada with all the carfentanil found and things. Um, you know, if, if that was the case here, there's questions about whether we'd actually find that, which is is a bit of a worry. But for the vast majority of things, we can actually find out if something is MDMA or not, or if it's cocaine or not. And that's for most people, that's 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 the most useful thing because then you can actually have um, an interaction with people using drugs and tell them what, what is what we think is in their drugs and how they should reduce harm when it comes to taking them, basically. Um, sorry, so that was, that was the first method. And we also, we have a method of, of testing pill strengths, which is just a kind of, kind of wet chemical method. Um, although we're hoping to update that to using UV spectroscopy this summer. Um, and then the third method, which we just use as a kind of backup, just to check th- check with things, is just reagent testing. 
Awesome. Thank you. And I, you mentioned um, some of the concerns and I know that they're, you know, some of the opponents of the pill testing concept talk about how it might um, reagent testing specifically can provide maybe a false sense of security um, because the reagent testing can only tell you like the I hope I'm describing this correctly if someone else wants to jump in, but it can tell you like the most prominent substance um, within what you're taking. It's good for broadly ruling things in or out, sure. essentially. Um, and when for most people, they're just dealing, like for most people, MDMA is the really the only thing they want to test. Or sure. I um, a lot of people do test cocaine and ketamine as well, but that's more I guess I'm wondering, Bill Marie, from like a harm reduction standpoint, um, what are your thoughts on um, the drug checking at festivals and maybe specifically the um, like false sense of security? Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think. But here, again, one of the things that's been interesting doing the testing is that actually the biggest concern for a lot of people hasn't been the drugs that they think they are. The, their drugs aren't what they think they are. It's more just actually that they're far more concentrated than, than they realize or far stronger. Um, and that's, that's largely due to the fact that there's a lot of very high purity MDMA being produced in the Netherlands at the moment. All the UK's uh, MDMA and all the MDMA, uh, all the UK's pills come from. Um, and that's been the real problem. I mean, if you're getting a, a pill that's 200, 250, 300 milligrams, and someone doesn't realize because the last time they took pills was five years ago and they were used to taking two or three at a time. And then they take two or three of those. That's a huge amount of MDMA for someone to be taking in one go. And that's when it gets incredibly dangerous. Um, so, yeah, it's been having that interaction with people where we actually tell them that your drugs are stronger than you think they are. Um, again, uh, just just go slowly, take small amounts, halve your pills, things. They kind of typical harm reduction advice that you'd be surprised realize yeah i think i think that's definitely a good point that you know we we need to be careful and honest with the the i guess the limitations of um some of these checking and, and testing methods i think that said though the fact that they exist and and that that they're available to us is incredible uh obviously in in the u.s we're faced with some legal factors that can um, become a barrier for us being able to use these. Uh, for example, as, as the drug as the drug education manager, um, I have a lot of students that are really interested in um, learning about and providing the service to their peers. Uh, however, a lot of the materials, the, the reagent kits, are considered paraphernalia in some states, and yeah. thus the possession of which is, is you know, uh, uh, criminalized. So. You know, we we've got the we know the resources exist, and then there's this huge barrier for us to be able to, to use them. So that's a, a an issue with, with some mm -hmm. of our students is that they really you, um, but they're kind of blocked from. Yeah, that's to do actually. Um, I also I serve as the co-chair of SSDP's um, international outreach committee, and we work a little bit with uh, SSDP UK. And one of the really interesting things that we've seen. Um, the SSTP chapters in Ireland, I think, actually sort of pioneered the drug checking on campus, but a handful of chapters in SSTP UK have picked it up. I think specifically um, Manchester, and we had a couple members of their chapter on to talk about their initiative. And then I believe 
London School of Economics is just in the process, like this week, of launching their program. Um, but I'm wondering if Diane or Henry, you could talk about uh, what maybe the 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 difference in law enforcement response or the the similarity in law enforcement response in the two countries. Well, you know, let, let me talk about you know Durham uh, Police Department up in. Um, England, because last year when we were um, out for the uh, Leap UK launch, is Neil Franklin and I took a, a little side trip up to Durham. And if I could replicate Mike Barton and then <laughs> the equivalent of what would be their elected sheriff and make them into law enforcement agencies across the United States, we would not be having any of these issues that we're having. They are that progressive, and I'm not talking progressive from a political standpoint, but in innovation, um, they have some of the best science behind the programs that they're using. So what? So they, they basically are not doing evidence-based policing. They're doing peer-reviewed empirical research, evidence-based policing, where they're showing the significant results. So they believe in harm reduction. You know, they, they basically ignore low-level drug offenses like cannabis because it takes resources away from fighting crime. Now, they're, they're not ignoring, you know, cartels or criminals or people who are, who are manufacturing drugs, but they're diverting people out of the system as much as possible because they recognize that criminalization doesn't work when it comes to drug policy. So... Um, in the United States, we are seeing some very progressive law enforcement agencies. We have now law enforcement assisted diversion out of Seattle that's rapidly expanded in the same type of um, situation. But I still think there are outliers in comparison to maybe what we're seeing in other countries. Henry, am I right? Wrong on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially when you highlight Durham. I mean, Durham it, it is they are the most progressive police force in the UK. I mean, it's also convenient that they also happen to be vote, uh, rated the best police force in the UK. I, I wouldn't say that's coincidence. Um, but um, but there's certainly other police forces which are nowhere near as progressive in the UK. Um, and what's interesting is part, part of the, the actual progressive stance of a lot of police forces of essentially rolling in de facto decriminalization, at least when it comes to cannabis, isn't it doesn't necessarily come from uh, any morals or high high-minded logic. I mean, it, it does in Durham to some extent, but in a lot of police forces, it's actually just the fact that we don't have the funds at the moment to actually, well, they don't have the funds at the moment to to pursue all the crimes they want to, and so they decided that the most illogical crimes to pursue are the ones to do with like cannabis possession, uh, low-level growing, things like that. But um, there's certainly plenty of police forces that haven't caught up. Um, I mean, going back to pill testing, it's interesting because that, that's something which, again, they've realized is a clear benefit for them because they don't want people dying at a festival where they're, where a police force is meant to be, you know, under controlling drugs. If, if someone dies at a festival where the police force are meant to be controlling drug use, then that looks bad on that police force. So to some extent, there's a, there's a PR, PR side to it as yeah. well, uh, where, you know, if they, if they get us in to make sure that fewer people are dying from drug use, 
um, then that looks good for them. Sort of a perfect um, segue into what I wanted to ask next, um, which relates to Fabric, the club in London, mm-hmm. I believe, that's reopening. Um, and I know that there's been a lot of controversy about. Um, they were closed because there were a couple of drug-related deaths, and now that they've decided to reopen, their new policies are perhaps questionable at best. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there you can see a difference. So in, in that's fabric, which is in London, and so there it's, it's the Metropolitan Police that are in control, and they've been what what the, the kind of dialogue that's happened around fabric is it sort of transpired that the relationship between the clubs and the, and the club owners um, and and the local police had really got to a point where it had completely fallen apart and the police, uh, to some extent egged on by the local council, by all accounts, was essentially looking for an excuse to close down fabric and so sent in undercover officers just with the explicit point of trying to find something that they could then make sure they could shut it down. There were then obviously two uh, tragic deaths last summer of uh, young men, they were both uh, 18 years old. Um, so it was a kind of perfect storm of unfortunate events, which then meant that the, that the club closed down and then there was this huge fight going on and it wasn't, wasn't at all certain that it would reopen again. So the fact that it has at all is a victory. Um, and it has with some pretty uh, aggressive um, uh, uh, um guidelines uh so there have to be some pretty thorough searches i think there's metal detectors on the way in um the age of entry has been raised from 18 to 19 um what else oh you have to uh, your id gets scanned on the way in so there's, there's a lot of kind of fairly severe policies but also there's a lot of things that they haven't done which they could have done so at least on, on the positive side they haven't insisted that they have to have drug dogs on the door which has been something which has been asked of Fabric before and Fabric won a court case to say no drug dogs aren't effective in fact they're um, they're, they're counterproductive and that's actually a, something which just this last week has been reproved so there was a death um, of a 17 year old girl here in London last year um, Emily Lyons who was on her way to a, a, a gig at uh, the O2 which is a huge um huge venue here in London. Uh, she took, uh, I think it was 250 milligrams of MDMA on her way in, uh, mm. on the train in. And then when she was in the queue, she saw that there were drug dogs. And so took another huge dose of 250 oh. milligrams of MDMA because she didn't want to get wow. caught. And then tragically then, then died, um, you know, a short while after when she was inside the venue. Uh, you know, when you think she was taking, she, consumed half a gram of MDMA uh, on a small girl of 17, that's unsurprising. It's un- unfortunately one of those scenarios which can happen so frequently with drug dogs, and it's why I think at least it's, it's a blessing that the fabric don't have that on the door now. Um, I think there's there's certainly some issues with what they haven't recommended. So something that we were hearing from all corners was get some form of drug testing um, in or around fabric uh, for their reopening. Uh, that hasn't happened, that hasn't transpired, but there are sounds from certain places that um, getting some kind of drug testing booth or center in London uh, 
could be a way forward. So, I mean, the, the, the problem with having drug testing within a club is often by, the, by that point where people are inside the club, they've already taken their drugs. Um, and if they've got their drugs inside and then they find out that they're not what they think they are, they're probably not in much of a state to do anything about it. Whereas if you have somewhere that's external to a venue, for a start, then lots more people can use it. And also they can use it earlier in the evening, get their results and then do what they wish with them. Whereas actually delivering them in a club setting is perhaps not, not the most useful. I just want to highlight what you mentioned, Henry, about um, by the time someone gets into the to the club or the venue, they've likely already taken something. I mean, we certainly see that happen with with alcohol, with pre gaming. So I think having some sort of um, space where people can be, you know, checking their their drugs before they go um, is hugely important. I think that's a really good really good point. From a law enforcement standpoint, if we could get all law enforcement to recognize that our job, first and foremost, is the protection of lives and that harm reduction and testing saves lives, mm -hmm. it, it would make a huge difference in policing. And, and I think we're, we're moving towards that direction. Um, I, we're a little blip in the road here in the United <laughs> States with a with some with with some new policies, but I think we're going to hold the line and we're going to continue to be successful in it. Fantastic. And thank you, everyone, for joining us um, today. We're going to wrap it up really quickly here, but we always end our discussions with a call to action from our special guest. So, Henry, if there was one thing that you could have our listeners do um, today or in the future, what would that be? So, so, so I'm going to be uh, going to kind of grab for two uh, two calls to action actually. So one for UK-based listeners, or in particular London-based. Uh, so there is an event um, happening here uh, next week, which is the one-year anniversary of Leap UK. Um, uh, so they launched a year ago, and they're, they're looking back on a year of drug policy reform and seeing what's changed in the year. So that'll be an interesting one. That's also going to be a podcast, so anyone else will be able to. And the other one I have is uh, our own event. So VaultFast are launching their uh, next report uh, in Canada this time. Uh, so it's the green screen launch, which I think we're we're launching with the help of Lyft, which is a Canadian uh, organisation, uh, on Sunday, and they're going to be streaming screaming the launch. Screaming? Streaming. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. And thank you again to Henry Fisher and Bill Marie Narlock and Diane Goldstein for joining us today this, um, for this discussion. Thank you, thank you guys for hosting us. Thanks for listening to episode 85 of This Week in Drugs. We'd like to thank everyone for coming on again to our roundtable discussion. Uh, we'd like to thank you all for listening. And if you like the show, please make sure to subscribe, rate, leave comments, share with your friends so that other folks can hear all of this excellent information. If you have any questions for us, suggestions for the show, or other sorts of feedback, you can email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com or find us on social media. Our outro song for today is Get In Line by the You Suck Flying Circus.
way. Our investigation has revealed that things in the are much worse than we anticipated. Well, effective tomorrow morning, the entire government will shut down. I'm sorry, I just started hearing really loud surface music in my head. What did you say?